0: Hello everyone, and welcome to this special edition of Employment Matters, brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm your host, Tara Stingley, a partner with Klein Williams in Omaha, Nebraska. On the program, we span the globe with updates on critical employment issues from ELA members in each region. Today, we're connecting with one of our members in Missouri. Joining us on the program is Molly Mohan, an employment lawyer and shareholder with Tueth Keeney in St. Louis, Missouri. Welcome to the program, Molly. How are you?
1: I'm great, Tara. Happy International Women's Day.
0: Hey, same to you. So, March 8th is International Women's Day. And in honor of this special day, we invited Molly to the program to discuss recent legal developments on issues relating to women's rights, including Equal Pay Act claims and cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. So, Molly, let's start off by talking about a recent news headline the U.S. women's soccer team settlement. Can you give us a general overview of this case?
1: Sure, absolutely. As you, I'm sure, will recall, the U.S. women's soccer team filed a class action lawsuit in 2019. They were alleging claims under the Equal Pay Act and Title VII. Essentially, This is an absolute powerhouse team. I mean, you know, dating back to even before 2015, winning World Cups, going really far in the Olympics. And they were alleging essentially that despite this roaring success, despite the $20 million in revenue that they were bringing in, they were still making about four times less than the men's soccer team. So this actually started in 2016. Some of the players had brought a charge of discrimination with the EEOC, alleging pay disparities under Title VII you know, they, they alleged that they weren't getting the same bonuses that the men's team were getting. They, they weren't getting appearance fees and even small things like meal allowances on trips and things like that. So they brought this charge of discrimination and the charge eventually turned into this class action lawsuit in 2019 on behalf of all of the women's soccer players against the U S soccer federation. And so the settlement was 24 million. And, you know, we were talking before we started recording about kind of what an inspiration this team is and how just personally, that's such an inspiring story. And they made sure that 2 million of the settlement goes to charitable efforts for girls soccer and, you know, starting youth soccer programs, which I think is just so cool. One thing that I thought was interesting, and I think we will continue to probably hear about the settlement itself was contingent upon ratification of the collective bargaining agreement. So they're currently in negotiations right now to Ratify the new union agreement with the players' union, and they are actually doing collective bargaining together with the men's team. And so, the men's team and the women's team are going to have to come to some kind of agreement with US Soccer about how to share those dollars. So, you know, again, the settlement's contingent upon ratification of this agreement. So, we'll see how that shakes out. And I think probably this is not the last headline that we'll be seeing about this issue.
0: Yeah, that's huge. And if I'm correct, the settlement came even after the court had dismissed the equal pay claims. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that's correct. So in May of 2020, the judge dismissed the EPA claims, the Equal Pay Act claims, and said, you know, on a cumulative basis, the women's players are actually paid more per game than the men's team. And so that really gutted their case. He also only allowed the Title VII claim to proceed with regard to, I think it was support staff and some travel reimbursements, you know, really not focused at all on the wages. So I think this case is a great example of how, in these high profile cases, sometimes even when you win, you still lose. You know, they had really, really bad press for so many years about this. The players were really strategic. You know, they used their social media, they used their fan base to really rally and kind of keep the pressure on US soccer. They were selling T shirts and things like that. And I think that really certainly forced US soccer's hand here. And then The rumor is also that the defense costs here were over $9 million. So the case was also incredibly expensive to defend. And so I think a good practice pointer is when you're facing a lawsuit like this, you know, the discussion, the risk analysis discussion tends to be, well, can we win the case and what's it going to cost us to win? And I think something that's important and something that this settlement shows us is it can't just be the financial cost and whether or not you think you're actually your chances of, of prevailing in front of a court, because here they did prevail. But the publicity was so bad that, you know, they were still forced to make this payout. So considerations of publicity and things like that should certainly always be part of the conversation when you're having these these risk analysis. And what do we do with this
0: lawsuit type of conversation? So in your opinion, why is this settlement with the U.S. women's soccer team such a big deal?
1: Well, it's no secret that even before the Me Too movement, you know, these gender equality issues, particularly related to pay, have been prevalent and have been increasing in profile. The gender pay gap is something we've been hearing about for years and years. I think it's been constant now for about 15 years. In 2019, the same year that this class action was filed, I'm not sure if you'll recall, but Melinda Gates pledged $1 billion to close this wage gap. And that was in response to this World Economic Forum gender gap index study, which found that at the current rate of change, the gender gap wouldn't close for 208 years. And so, you know, this this discussion, this ongoing discussion about gender inequality and pay gap and things like that has has been ongoing. And just to take a step back and provide a little bit more context about what we're talking about here, the pay gap has been studied, you know, what what men make versus what women make has been studied for, you know, it's been the subject of many, many studies. But the prevailing research seems to suggest that women typically earn about 84% of what men earn. So for every dollar a man makes, a woman earns 84 cents. Now, there's been a few recent studies that have closed that gap to 98% if you adjust for you know, type of job and things like that. But certainly, no matter how you slice it, this pay disparity exists and it has existed for over 15 years and has remained stagnant. Some of the studies I was reading noted that the pay disparity more than doubles for women of color. So this has been an ongoing conversation and it's it's no coincidence that this settlement takes place now i mean the pandemic again it's not a secret that the pandemic has hit women and has forced women out of the workforce in droves i was reading a statistic that women's representation in the labor force is currently at a 33 year low so this is a very timely settlement and it certainly signals a really significant victory in the ongoing sort of fight and battle to address the gender disparities in the workplace
0: Do you think this settlement is an isolated result? Or, if we put it another way, what impact does it have on areas beyond women's sports? I definitely do not think it's an isolated
1: result. These conversations are broader than just U.S. soccer, it's broader than sports. These conversations are taking place amidst a broader conversation about wages in general. I mean, the minimum wage was increased in January and all of us who are in the employment sphere have been keeping an eye on this, the great resignation and you know the increasingly competitive labor market. So you've seen headline after headline about how workers are paying more attention to wages. They're paying more attention to workplace conditions and they have more options. So they're looking for transparency with regard to pay. They're looking for, they're shopping around. They're talking to other employees about, hey, what do you make in this position? They're talking to their current coworkers about, I'm getting paid this. What are you getting paid? So it, you know, it's no coincidence that this, this is all taking place at the same time. And the law is evolving to catch up with these conversations. So there's been a very large push in the last several years at the federal level and the state level to pass legislation to address transparency in wages. So the federal government has a rule basically saying that no federal contractor or subcontractor can retaliate against an employee who asks about wages you know who discloses their wages with other coworkers or applicants and there are nearly 25 states that have similar laws. So there's there's like I said this accelerating trend toward transparency in wages and protecting workers who discuss their wages and pay. And at the same time states are also passing laws requiring employers to list salaries on job postings. So there's nine of I believe there's at least nine laws like that across the country. You know, laws vary. Some of them only require disclosure upon request. But this is not an isolated settlement by any means. And it's not the last of this conversation that we're going to be hearing about. So,
0: Molly, you and I both practice in employment law, and I know we both see these Equal Pay Act claims more and more. What do you think this case means for employers outside of the professional sports area in a variety of industries?
1: Well, like I said, I don't think that this is isolated to sports. I think that there is a growing emphasis on wages. And what that means is an increase in these types of claims against employers. So we're already sort of seeing an increase in the Title VII and Equal Pay Act claims.
0: And I absolutely think that we will continue to see that increase. And these cases can have real significant consequences for employers. Talk to us about that. What are the potential liabilities for employers in this area?
1: So, yes, employee liability can be very, very steep. And you know there's the federal law is title 7 and the equal pay act and so in addition to having potential vulnerability under federal law every state i believe but one has a concurrent state law that also protects and prohibits wage disparity based on gender so under most of these laws an employee only needs to prove that he or she is being paid different wages than employees performing substantially equal work under substantially equal conditions so courts have interpreted that in different ways. Some courts require it to be sort of virtually identical work, but it's not a totally onerous and impossible bar
0: to overcome. And one of the challenges in employment litigation in general is avoiding class action litigation. How do these EPA claims factor into that analysis? That's a great question because I think this settlement is a perfect
1: example. You know, unlike traditional gender discrimination claims, you know, you and I do this regularly and so we know you have to prove intentional discrimination against this particular employee. Equal pay claims are not they do not have that intentionality or that singularity requirement at all whatsoever. And so they're perfectly suited for a class action because if, you know, if one sales woman sales associate finds out that men are eligible for an additional class of bonuses, let's say, you're not going to get a lawsuit from that one employee. You're going to get a lawsuit from all female sales associates saying, hey, why are the men getting paid more than me? So they really are absolutely perfectly suited for class action lawsuits, which of course increases the employer's vulnerability. And the the penalties here are pretty stiff. You know, you get the employees, whether that's just one employee, hopefully in your best case scenario or a class action of employees are entitled to back wages depending on whether the violation is determined to be willful or not, you can go back two years or, you know, if it's willful, you can go back three years. The employee is entitled to a liquidated damage award of twice, whatever the back pay is. So you get dinged with the back pay award and then the court doubles that for liquidated damages. And then, as we all know, often the highest price tag in litigation is the attorney's fees. So you're also, you're on the hook for the employee's lawyers, attorney's fees. And that's just under the Equal Pay Act. You know, Of course, Title VII has caps of $300,000 for large employers. State laws, some state laws have caps on their the damages that can be recovered. Some don't. So if you're staring down the barrel of an EPA claim, a Title VII claim, and a state law claim, this can be really, really crippling
0: for your business. So in addition to the U.S. women's soccer team settlement, have there been any other recent cases that have caught your eye? I did see a Sixth Circuit case recently that I thought was
1: perhaps this is just showing my bias, but I thought that it was unusual. It was an equal pay act claim that was brought by a black male who alleged he was hired. And then a couple of years later, a white woman was hired in the same analyst position, but at a higher rate of pay. And over the course of a couple of years, he saw this white woman receive higher raises, more bonuses. And so he complained about this internally and he was initially he was up for a promotion and when after he complained about this he was told that he should no longer apply for that promotion so you know of course this employer was hit with not only the equal pay act claim but they were hit with a retaliation claim related to this promotion issue and the employer said look This had nothing to do with gender. This is not an equal pay act claim. The woman had more experience. She had more qualifications and her performance justified essentially a pay differential here. But the court said, no, no, no. You have not shown that there is a consistent basis. There's a metric for how you're giving raises. You're essentially just subjectively saying that you like her performance better than this male employees. And that's not going to cut it. So, you know, the court This went up on appeal to the Sixth Circuit and the Sixth Circuit sent it back and said this person's claims can proceed. So I thought that was interesting just because we don't usually see these claims brought by men, but it's something absolutely that employers should keep in the back of their mind that this isn't just a, it's not like I've got to look and make sure that the women in my, in my workforce are being treated fairly. No, no. You need to make sure that all employees are treated fairly or you're vulnerable
0: from claims from both sides. So what else should employers do to make sure they're not targets for these types of cases?
1: Well, kind of related to just looking at fairness, I think the best and most important thing an employer can do is audit the workforce. You know, when you're auditing your workforce, you will catch disparities in pay by gender, but also on all of the other protected classes that are covered and protected by not just the Equal Pay Act, but by Title VII, all the Age Discrimination and Employment Act, the Americans with Disabilities Act. I mean, you really have the ability to catch a lot of potential red flags and issues in your workforce. And not just that, but going beyond the anti-discrimination laws, you know, from an FLSA perspective, we're always looking at whether we've misclassified workers and classification of workers. And so if performing a workplace audit can help you catch just a myriad of issues that can save you a heartache down the road. So that's certainly number one by a long shot. But I don't think that we've heard the last of this pay transparency. You know, like I said, it's more and more states and the federal government are pushing for paid transparency, and so it's not a bad idea to consider making pay data available, even if it's just a salary band listed by position. You know, some of the studies about the gender pay gap have shown that in companies that have transparent salaries, it essentially eliminates the pay gap. It's effectively a race. So women make between $1 $1 and a dollar to a dollar and a penny for every dollar a male counterpart earns in workplaces that have salary transparency so you know it, in addition to avoiding these types of claims and in, in addition to potentially being mandatory depending on what state you live in it also helps morale i mean people when they feel like they're being treated fairly you know they feel like they're in a company that they feel invested in it helps with recruiting when you list your salary you know it kind of weeds out people who aren't going to be interested in that i know, It happens all the time where we go all the way through in a recruiting process and at the end of it, we give them the number and they don't want it and you've got to start all over again. So it helps sort of save money in the recruiting process. And then obviously it will help you avoid these types of suits if you're listing that type of salary pay. And then I think based on the Sixth Circuit case, one of the things the court really harped on was how this employer did not have metrics or any sort of basis for how they are setting salaries, how they are, you know, giving raises. And so I know that the research on that and the thinking on that shifts pretty wildly about how to perform evaluations and whether it should just be more informal or it should be absolutely formalized and there should be a metric and every workplace is different. So I can't speak to that across the board, but certainly from an avoidance of an EPA claim perspective, having a metric or having a at least some sort of written basis for how your granting raises will save you a lot of heartache on the back end.
0: So let's jump for a minute to the U.S. Supreme Court. It's got a new term coming up. Can you give us an update on the cases that the Supreme Court is likely to consider this term that might impact women's rights? Sure.
1: I mean, we've seen even in the last term, I mean, abortion rights has obviously been a central and very hot button conversation. That's not going away. You know, the court is continuing to grant Cert in cases addressing abortion rights. They've got one that they heard in December that's a direct challenge to the current sort of viability standard that we expect to have a decision on relatively soon. Several other cases kind of working their way through. And then, you know, Congress just recently, Tara, I know that you know this because you just had another podcast about this recently passed an arbitration clause ban for sexual assault and sexual harassment cases. And so I don't know the current status if the president has signed that law or not, but. If he does sign it and it is challenged, there are a lot of other arbitration clause challenge cases on the the Supreme Court's current docket. They they take those cases relatively frequently. And so I think it's not out of the realm of possibility that we would hear a challenge for that.
0: And of course, we have the news of a new nomination to the Supreme Court.
1: Yes, very, very exciting. Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson, obviously nominated to fill Judge Breyer's seat, who she clerked for after law school. He announced his retirement a few months ago, currently a judge on the DC circuit, first former public defender who would serve on the court. And obviously the first black woman who would, who would serve on the court. So that's really exciting. And I I was reading yesterday that they're trying to push that toward hearing. So we should have some, some updates on that relatively soon, but definitely exciting time
0: in legal news for women. Certainly lots to keep an eye on. And Molly, thank you so much. This has been a fascinating discussion. Thanks so much for joining us on the program. No, oh, thank you, Tara. This has been great. If you'd like to connect with Molly, please click on her name in the podcast description. You can also reach out to any of our lawyers around the world by selecting Find a Lawyer on the ELA website at ela.law. You can also look through our upcoming and on-demand webinars, download articles and white papers, or access the ELA's exclusive Global Employer Handbook. You've been listening to Employment Matters, a podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm Tara Stingley. Thanks so much for listening.